Well, good morning, church. Please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, which I'm sure is a surprise to many, if not all of you, since we've been in the book of Isaiah uh, for good part of nine months now. Uh, but in our study of the book of Isaiah, we've kind of come to the end of the first half of the book. The book is organized into two major sections. We've come to the end of the first uh, uh, the first half of the book of Isaiah. And so uh, we are going to continue in our study of the book of Isaiah. We're going to study the second half of the book, uh, but we're going to begin that in a few weeks. And so uh, this week and next, I'm going to be uh, preaching from Colossians chapter 1. And then on August 13th, Sunil John is going to be bringing the word to us, and we're going to be uh, praying for he and Gina as they prepare to return to Nepal. That's going to be a very uh, important Sunday uh, in the life of our church. And then on August 20th, Austin Dosh is going to be bringing us the word. Uh, I'm going to be out visiting uh, my father who is recovering uh, from quadruple bypass surgery and then also taking our oldest, uh, our oldest uh, daughter, Alethea, to Clark Summit University in Pennsylvania and um, burning through boxes of tissues on the way back. And um, so, um, so grateful to Austin uh, for bringing uh, the word to us on the 20th. Uh, make sure you're here to, uh, here to hear what the Lord lays on his heart. But this morning, I'm going to direct our hearts to Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and we are going to see in this passage seven characteristics of a healthy church. Now, there are a lot of things that the New Testament says about the church, a lot of different characteristics that you can glean from different passages, and so uh, I'm going to focus just on the seven characteristics that we can glean from just this one passage. We're going to let just a single passage kind of be our guide and we're going to look at what is said about a healthy church in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. So read along with me as we read the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So we're going to be seeing seven characteristics of a healthy church from this passage. The church in Colossae was a very good church, and Paul has a lot of very good things to say about them. In verses 1 through 2, he gives them a greeting. And then in verses 3 through 8, he expresses thankfulness to God for what he has heard through Epaphras about the church in Colossians. And so in that expression of thankfulness to God, we're going to glean seven characteristics of a healthy church. Before we kind of dive into that list of seven, we'll do uh, probably the first three to, uh, this week and then the last four next week. But I want to begin with just some introductory thoughts on this passage. I want you to notice what he says at the beginning of verse 3. He says, we give thanks to God. 
You're like, boy, that's a pretty simple phrase to kind of draw your attention, but here's what I want to point out to you. What follows is a series of things which are very complementary towards the Colossian church. He compliments their faith. He compliments their love. He talks about their hope. He is saying very complementary things about them. But notice that Paul directs his praise to God and not to the Colossians. He doesn't flatter the Colossians. He doesn't congratulate them as if they were the ones to produce these characteristics in themselves. Rather, he thanks the one to whom all credit is due. He gives thanks to God. Alexander McLaren writes, quote, This praise is cast in the form of thanksgiving to God as the true fountain of all that is good in men. The fountain, not the pitcher filled from it, should have the credit of the crystal purity and sparkling coolness of the water. And I really appreciate kind of that word picture by Alexander McLaren. You know, if you're in a parched and barren land and all of a sudden someone hands you a pitcher full of crystal, pure, refreshing water and you're so thankful for the water and you remark on its quality and how good it is and how wonderful it is, he says, don't forget that the credit is due to the fountain from which it was filled, not to the pitcher which merely holds it. In a similar way, God, the fountain of all goodness and grace, right? James says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly light. So all blessings come from him. It was God who is the source and the fountain who should get the glory, not the Colossians who were merely the pitcher that was filled by these blessings. This, by the way, provides us with a very practical lesson in regard to what comprises biblical encouragement. I hope that in your home you have established an encouraging atmosphere where the people inside your home compliment one another, encourage one another, celebrate each other's successes, um, talk about what you appreciate in each other. But in that process, make sure that you don't give all the glory to the pitcher and none to the fountain which filled it. So there is a distinction between biblical encouragement and the secular substitute that has really made its way into not only the mindset of the culture, but even in the mindset of people in the church. And the secular substitute for biblical encouragement is self-esteem. What's the difference between the two? I want to explain it very simply. They both look a lot alike. Both of them share compliments. Both of them would, for example, a parent will be telling a child what they're good at and what they appreciate about them and how wonderful they are and how special they are. But in the secular model, the glory is given to the child. In biblical encouragement, the glory is given to the one who made the child in his own image and likeness. That's the primary distinction between biblical encouragement and the secular substitute of self-esteem. And it's right there in the name, isn't it? It's esteeming yourself rather than being drawn into worship of God in gratitude. So 
both the, the Christian and the secular person, if they are being good parents and good friends and good spouses, um, they will be encouraging. They will be sharing compliments. They will be doing what Paul does here to the Colossians. He's giving them several things that they do well. He's going to be talking about those things and really encouraging them. But he begins it by saying, we give thanks to God. Romans 11.36 says, All things are from him and through him and to him. God is the source of all good things. He is the means through which good things are manifested and therefore the glory should go to him. So encourage your children. Compliment your children. Celebrate your children's successes. But as you do that, give the glory to God because your children's joy will not be found from within themselves. It will be found in worship and praise of their creator. They are made in God's image to reflect his glory. And it is when his glory is shining on their life and being reflected in worship back to him in which they will, feel the, they will experience the greatest fulfillment, the greatest sense of purpose, and the greatest satisfaction of soul. If you turn the mirror inward... You turn the mirror in on itself. You take a mirror and you wrap it around where it's reflecting itself to itself. There you will find only misery because of the fallen nature of man. So practice and learn biblical encouragement. I think Paul models it here. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you because we've heard of your faith, your great faith, and your great love for all the saints and these wonderful qualities that you have and we celebrate that and we give the glory to him who it is due and in the giving of glory we experience the joy that comes from worship. Next, I want you to notice again as kind of a general introductory thought to the passage that the focus, especially of the first part of it is on faith, hope, and love. He says, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So the emphasis here is on faith, on hope, and on love. And these are three foundational characteristics of the Christian. The Christian is characterized by faith in God, by love for the saints, and by hope in eternal life. So, of course, faith, hope, and love are the focus of the enemy, the devil's assaults against us. He wants to undermine our faith. He wants to attack our faith with doubt. He wants to then undermine our love with selfishness or various ideologies that will turn that inward. And I think the one I mentioned is a good example. He wants to divert our love for all the saints with a self-love or a self-esteem. Instead of worship directed towards God and love towards all the saints, he wants to redirect that inward and replace an a God word and others focus with a self focus. He wants to undermine also our hope. He wants us to begin to think that maybe it, our salvation does depend on us and therefore maybe what we're doing or have done isn't enough and therefore to lose our assurance of salvation. 
The enemy is constantly attacking our faith, our hope, and our love. But those are the three pillars of the Christian life. And so uh, when you're struggling, you know, there's all kinds of things you could be thinking through and you can get real deep and complex in many things. But while you may need to work on some complexities of your life, make sure that you don't forget the basics, right? It's kind of like, you know, the basics of physical health, right? You know, food and water and sleep are some pretty basics of physical health. Likewise, faith, hope, and love are really the foundational issues. So don't get too lost in the weeds when you're struggling. Just cling to the Lord in faith. Keep your hope fixed upon him and then choose the path of love rather than self-focus. And if you will cling to faith, hope, and love and apply them in your life, there are a lot of storms that will beat against those pillars, but they cannot be moved. So those are kind of two general observations. One is what is biblical encouragement? Secondly, uh, make sure we are paying attention to the three pillars of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. I also want you to notice, though, the role of prayer. I look at the end of verse 3. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And, and he then quickly does that in verses 9 through 12. He says in verse 9, for this reason also since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So notice that Paul gives thanks to the Lord in verses 3 through 8, but then rapidly moves into praying for them in verses 9 through 12. And so in verses 3 through 8, we have this list of things that the church in Colossae was doing right, but then he prays for them in regard to some things that they still need to grow in and that they need to be strengthened in. And this just reminds us that even a very healthy church, even a good church like the church in Colossae, is not a perfect church. They still need exhorted. They still needed to have some rebukes given to them in the book of Colossians. They need warnings. They need instruction. They need prayer. And so the fact that Paul is so complimentary about the church and then later on rebukes them, that's not him kind of switching his view from a high view of the church to the low view of the church. It's him recognizing that even the best church needs to improve, needs to grow, needs to turn away from sin, pursue holiness, needs to turn away from areas of weakness and improve them uh, with strength. They need to grow. And we, therefore, also as a congregation, should know that we need to grow. I think there are, of these seven characteristics of a healthy church, I think there are some that we're strong in. I think there are some we're weak in. And so we need to strengthen that which is weak. And then, in the areas that we're strong, we need to, as the scripture says, excel still more. So never be satisfied with our level of growth, but always be striving ahead and pressing onward for the upward prize. Well, those are just some introductory comments. Now let's kind of dig into the seven characteristics of a healthy church found in verses 3 through 8. And the first two characteristics are all things that verse 4 says Paul 
heard about. So he had heard them from a distance. He's in Rome, and this report about them reached all the way to Paul in Rome. And the two things that he says he had heard about was their faith in Christ and the love which they had for all the saints. And so the first two characteristics really have to do with what a church is known for outside of their walls, outside of their community, to those that are farther away. And so as we look at these characteristics, I want us to be asking ourselves, what is Calvary Bible Church known for in our community? And would these two things be on the list of what we are known for in Kalamazoo? What we're known for amongst your neighbors? What we're known for amongst your coworkers? And the first characteristic is this. A healthy church is known for their faith in Christ. Verse 4. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So Epaphras in his report to Paul in Rome was able to summarize how the church was doing by saying that their faith was in Christ. And you may be, because when I first read this, it's, it's, these are such familiar words to us that the impact of the meaning is, can be lost on us. I said, well, of, of course their faith was in Christ. I mean, they're Christians. That's like definitional to a Christian to have faith in Christ. But what, I, what is Paul really focusing in on here? I think he's focusing on the fact that their trust, their confidence, their hope for the future was not in their leaders, not in their budgets, not in their programs, not in man at all. Their trust was completely in Christ. It's almost the concept of a, of a, of a sphere of thought and the sphere is Christ and all of their confidence has been placed within that circle. There's no trust in anyone or anything which is not in that circle. Their trust was placed in Christ. So to kind of apply that to ourselves, let, let's ask ourselves some hard questions. Does our community view us as a church of having our trust for the future? our confidence in things going well for us in the future and into eternity, do they see our trust being placed exclusively in Christ or do they see our trust being split and distributed? Well, you know, they trust in Christ, but it's pretty clear they're also really putting their trust in winning that next election. They're also putting their trust in, you know, in, in, uh, you know, in their financial situation. They're also putting their trust in their numbers. They're putting their trust in their location or their programs or whatever. What is our trust really in? What is our trust really in? Who is our trust really in? The Colossians who had a lot going for them. They could have put a lot of confidence in their leaders. Well, the reason we have confidence for the future is we, Epaphras was the founder of our church. Or the reason we have confidence for the future is even though Epaphras has been arrested, we have Archippus, young, talented guy. But think about this. At any moment, 
right? I mean, when we see the context of the book of Colossians, Epaphras, the founder of the church, had gone to Rome, reported to Paul, and while he was there, he got arrested and imprisoned with Paul. So now the church is without their guy, right? Without their guy. If their confidence had in their leader, their confidence is gone. Their confidence is all locked up in a Roman jail cell now. So if a church's confidence is in their pastor or in their leadership, that is a misplaced confidence because they're all mere men. All, I've met a lot of pastors. I am one, and I've noticed something about all of us. We're people. And um, yeah, it's a startling observation, I know. Um, you know, I, you know, sometimes as a kid, you know, sometimes you'd wonder, like, maybe he really is a robot, you know, like, maybe the elders unplug the guy backstage and he wheels out and does his thing, right? No, we are, we are mere mortals, mere men, and therefore, look at the devastation that comes in many people's spiritual life when, you know, of course, we have all of these scandals that go around and we have all of these well-known leaders who fall, some very famous ones who had seemed to make a great impact and then they, they just scandalize the church. And so many people's faith, it go, they, they go through this crisis of faith. It's like, if, if my guy could fall, then maybe it's not all real. Well, what does that tell you about whom their faith was in? Because I will tell you this, Jesus Christ has never scandalized the church and never will. Jesus Christ has never betrayed anyone. Jesus Christ has never fallen. Jesus Christ has never let our confidence in him be proven to be misplaced. Their faith was in Christ Jesus. So where, where is your faith and confidence? You know, we're, we're living in an age where the reach through mass media typically gives a small handful of personalities incredible influence and power. These guys don't even always seek it. Sometimes they themselves are alarmed by it. But just as in the days of the New Testament where Paul says, look, don't say, well, I'm, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, right? Don't be a personality follower even if they're doing a great job you your confidence your faith has to be rooted in Christ because if your confidence is in any man you're like you're one man's bad decision away from a faith crisis what why would you rest your faith on such a shaky foundation right no no fallen man is worthy of that level of trust your confidence has to be in Christ and Christ alone now, I'm not trying to say, as, of course, spiritual leaders have incredible responsibility before the Lord for, and before the people for um, the impact of, of their lives and of their actions, but a faithful shepherd needs to constantly be saying, look, just as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And if I don't follow Christ, stop following, right? Stop following me follow him. He is the good shepherd. Everybody else are assistants, right? So if you're a sheep, you have a good shepherd and you have these assistants to the shepherd and one of them, you know, like, you know, tries to lead the sheep off some cliff, don't follow him there. Keep following the shepherd and keep following the under shepherds who are following the shepherd. 
A healthy church is known for their faith in Christ. Let me ask you, what distinguishes you? What are you known for at work? What are you known for in your neighborhood? What are you known for in your family? What's the first thing that comes to mind when they think about you? Um, And what's the first thing you mention when you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Brett, and I... What's the first thing out of my mouth? That's convicting for me because I can't say that the first thing out of my mouth is, hi, I'm Brett and I belong to Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing I want you to know about me. Sometimes it's a whole list of lesser things. Well, I'm, I'm Brett, I'm from Colorado and I, you know, I like this or that sport and this or that team and I you know, do this or that vocationally or whatever however we may introduce ourselves. Let's make sure we keep the primary thing the primary thing. A healthy church is known for their faith in Christ. Secondly, a healthy church is known for their love for all believers. Look at the last part of verse four. Paul had heard not only of their faith in Christ Jesus, but also he says, the love which you have for all the saints. I want you to notice just three simple things from this phrase. First of all, the love he mentions here is agape love. He uses the word agape. He doesn't use, for example, the word phileo, which could talk about a, uh, a kind of a natural love of friends and family. He talks about agape, which the New Testament says comes from God and God alone. You can't have this love or manifest it unless you get it from him and through him. What is agape love? Well, it is self-sacrificial love. It is covenant-keeping love. It is giving love. It is fervent love. It is loyal love. It is unconditional love. And this was the kind of love which the Colossians directed towards, and the key word here is all the saints, all of them. I want you to notice also that this love is closely tied in verse four to their faith in Christ. It was something that was part and parcel of their faith. To have faith in Christ Jesus is to love all the saints. Why? Because all the saints are are the body of Christ. We are united with Christ by faith and every believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Do you love the Holy Spirit? Then you must love the one whom he indwells. You can't love God and then despise those whom he indwells. So in other words, their love, according to this verse, was self-sacrificial, comprehensive, and it was proof of their faith. It was self-sacrificial, it was comprehensive, and it was proof of their faith. I want to talk about those three subpoints just briefly. Their love, first of all, was self-sacrificial. For Paul to say that they had agape towards all the saints, there must have been some very tangible and practical and noticeable expressions of that love. Love is, according to the New Testament, not just a sentiment. It's, just not, it's not just nice words or flowering words. It's also actions. Uh, you know, the, I grew up listening to the band DC Talk. They had a famous song, Love is a Verb. Well, you know, they, they were right. It is. 1 John chapter 3 puts it this way. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us. So you want the definition of agape, right? How, How do we know what agape love is? Well, we know it by this, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us. 
He suffered for our sake. He served for our sake. He lived and died and rose again for us. And so John concludes, well, we also then ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Verse 17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? This is a love which causes you to die for someone else and you're not even willing to open your heart to help a guy a little bit. Little children, he says, verse 18, let us not love with word or tongue, but in action and in truth. Like, real love requires action. I won't, uh, you know, DC talk any lines from love is a verb, but those of my age range will hear it in your heads the rest of the sermon. Question for us is, do we love, and is our love an agape love, a self sacrificial love are we willing to lay down our lives for the brethren I remember in early phase of my ministry I was pastoring at a little church in Los Angeles called Arcadia Bible Church and we were doing a lot of inner city ministry and there was a guy who had got gloriously saved out of a really rough background he was a guy who had fear tattooed on his fists and had kind of lived that brawler background and and he was he was such a, a blessing and, and a help to me as we would go into some of these really gang-infested um, you know, gang, uh, areas of Los Angeles to do uh, street ministry and to minister to children and others in those areas. And um, there was a, you know, a couple times where we were kind of getting the, 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 uh, the threatening glances from some of the kind of gangbangers in those areas. And I remember one time we were... Uh, heading down to one of those areas and we were kind of going to an area we knew was was pretty sketchy and uh, where there was certainly opposition to the gospel there and I remember uh, my friend stopping me grabbing my arm and said Brett I just want to let you know I'm willing to take a bullet for you I was just blown away because it wasn't like he was serious and it was you know um, you know it was uh, you know certainly something that he knew was possible based on his background Agape love is self-sacrificial to the point of being willing to lay down our lives for the brethren. The history of the church, it's filled with many things, some good, some bad, some very ugly, but one thing that is consistent is when you read the stories of the martyrs, of course, did they die for Christ? Yes, they died for Christ. But many of them also the reason they were put to death is an unwillingness to betray their fellow believers many of them were tortured in order to get them to betray their fellow believers and they endured that suffering for the brethren so that is the level of love we're called to is being willing to suffer and die for our fellow believers but here in a context where few of us at least in my lifetime have been called to lay down our lives in the sense of of actually dying the real question for us is not whether you're willing to die for the brethren but whether you're willing to live for them are you willing to lay down your life for them not just your death for them but your life for them and this really gets down to some things which are so small but seem to be such large barriers. So many people say, I, I, would, I would die for Christ and I would, I would, I would, I would die rather than to, you know, if, to, let's say, hand over, you know, hand over fellow believers to you know, some, you know, some 
you know, powerful group that's putting him to death. You know, if the anti, you know, the end times comes, you know, and the, you know, well, the question is not whether you die for the brethren, but whether you would give an hour, whether you would give a little bit of your life. Are you willing to give an hour to the lonely believer? Are you willing to give some financial help to a destitute believer? Are you willing to serve and to lay down your comforts for the sake of others? In other words, do you have agape love? You may or may not be called to lay down your physical life for others, but you are certainly called to live your life in service to others. Are you willing to do that? Their love was self-sacrificial. Secondly, their love was comprehensive. It says they loved all of the saints. They loved all of their fellow believers without exception. In James uh, chapter two, the scripture says that partiality is forbidden. It says, look, if you see a rich man come into your assembly and you give him a great seat and then this poor man in rags comes in and you're like, hey, you know, kind of sit in the back and, 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 and stay away, he says you're sinning because partiality is forbidden in the body of Christ. So is your love comprehensive or do you have favoritism to the rich or to the poor, to the white collar or the blue collar, to one ethnic background or another, to one type of personality or another, or do you have love for all the saints? Uh, before I uh, came to Arcadia Bible Church, so this was during the days when I was in seminary and I really wanted to be serving and, and be getting ministry experience while I was studying, and so I was looking for opportunities, and the Lord eventually led me to Arcadia Bible Church and where I got to serve under the mentorship of one of my New Testament professors for masters, uh, Dr. C.W. Smith, and then he, uh, because of uh, contracting a terminal form of cancer, had to step back from that, and I kind of became uh, the, um, the interim uh, to step in and fill his shoes. But before that need and that opportunity arose, I had been looking for other opportunities to minister, and there was a church uh, in that area that was looking for a, a, a youth minister. And, it, and uh, unlike Arcadia Bible Church, this one was a paid position, a salaried position. And uh, I was, you know, working and going to seminary and wanting to do ministry, and so it would have meant I could just do ministry and go to seminary instead of having to work, do ministry and go to seminary. And so I was very interested in that position and filled out the application, and uh, they were interested in me. Uh, but then I had my interview with a senior pastor, and um, it was the oddest uh, conversation I think I've ever had. We sat down, and he said, he said, I already kind of know a lot about you. Um, you know, I, you know, I kind of know probably what your doctrinal beliefs are because you're going to masters. He said, the thing I wanted to talk to you about is, what, is whether or not you're phlegmatic or choleric. And I, I, was, I, didn't, I didn't know what he was talking about, right? I was like, I, 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 I thought like he was worried that like I, don't, like, I don't know, I have a lot of phlegm in my throat when I talk and so the teens won't want to listen to me or you know, choleric, I'm like, I don't have any contagious diseases that I know about. Um, no, but of course what he, he meant, as some of you have recognized, is he was very into a certain personality, um, you know, 
personality diagnosis and or, or analysis and he was convinced that he was a certain personality type and based upon this system his personality type clashes with certain other personality types so he told me if you are and I can't remember it was like phlegmatic choleric or something like that he said then there's no way we can work together and I, I thought to myself I said I don't know if I'm phlegmatic or choleric but I'm pretty sure we can't work together <laughs> you know so but but think about this right I look there are you know there is some value in certain ways to, to all of these there's about a hundred different personality you know um, personality analysis things that people can do and you know if you use them in the sense of gaining maybe a little insight about some of your tendencies and and then evaluate those scripturally I, I guess perhaps for someone that could be helpful but the primary way I've seen those used to be honest with you is to give people a justification for why they don't have love for all the saints that's how they're primarily used Paul says look I want to commend you church and Colossae because you have love for all the saints those who are like you those who are different from you those that your personality tests say are compatible with you and those that your personality tests say are not compatible with you. You have love for all the saints. So I, I want to just encourage you, uh, if you are the type of person who, you, you, like, you have likes and dislikes in regard to people, just like you have likes and dislikes in regard to food. It's like, hey, you know, I really love spicy food. I can't stand you know, some other type of food, right? It, with food, that's okay. But if you do that with people, repent, right? I, you know, I like introverts. I can't stand extroverts. I like extroverts. I can't stand introverts. Well, you know, Christ died and united you in one body with all kinds of people. So make sure you show love to all the saints. William Hendrickson writes about the love for the brethren he says the same magnet Christ Jesus who attracts sinners to himself and changes them into saints simultaneously draws them into closer fellowship with each other right Christ is the center he's like a magnet who draws people from all walks of life all different types of personalities and if you want my opinion you know, what is there? There's 8 billion people in the world. There's 8 billion personality types because every human being is unique. And it, you can kind of group people up. There are people who like to be louder and so they talk. There's those who are a little more, you know, internal and so they don't like to talk. I, that's fine. I don't mind kind of those, those generalizations. But there are 8 billion unique people and Christ is calling people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's calling, he's calling smart and less smart he's talking he's calling educated and less educated he's calling rich and poor he is calling all people from all walks of life to himself and if they are called to himself and if you are called to him you will be getting closer to a lot of other people many of whom are nothing like you except for in one quality and that is that they belong to Christ you cannot draw closer to Christ without drawing closer to other believers so your love for Christ is 
manifested and proven by your love for others. Alexander McLaren writes, pleasing self and making my own will my law and living for my own ends is destructive of all true Christianity. If you live to please yourself, if you make your own will and your own desires, the law that governs your life, if you're living for your own purposes and your own ends, that will be destructive of all true Christianity in your life. The number one way to express your love for Christ is to express your love to a member of his body love the saints and so if you want to move closer to others just move closer to Christ and he will move you closer to others well there's a third characteristic that I want to talk about this morning as before we close and that is that a healthy church has a certain hope and a certain future a healthy church has a certain hope and a certain future look at verse 5 he says that you have faith and you have love, he says, because, verse five, of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. A healthy church has a certain hope and a certain future because of the gospel. Because of the gospel. And one of the characteristics of false religions and cults is that they all teach an uncertain hope. A flimsy hope. A, it might be this type of hope. Why are all false religions, why do they all teach an uncertain hope? Well, because they all teach in one form or another that your salvation depends on you and on your merit, on, on your works, and on your deeds. And since salvation, according to them, depends upon you, you can never be sure you've done enough. You know, you know you. And that's why if you're relying on your own merit and your own works to get to heaven, you'll never have assurance of salvation. How can you? You know you. You know you, and I know me. I could never have assurance of salvation if I thought that even one iota of my eternal salvation depended upon my meriting it. Because how could I ever know that I did enough good deeds? How could I know that I did enough good deeds with good enough motives? How could I know that the things I did do which were wrong weren't so bad that I wouldn't make it? People who are trying to earn their way to heaven cannot have assurance of salvation. They cannot have certain hope in a certain future because they are relying on themselves and they are mortal and they are fallen and they are flawed and they know them. Their conscience constantly testifies to them that they cannot be good enough to go to heaven. The conscience was given to God, to men, primarily to make it clear on a daily basis that you fall short of the glory of God. For cults and false religions, the word hope is just a wish. I hope I've done enough to make it happen. I remember in my first trip to Russia, I wanted to talk in person. I had you know, studied Eastern Orthodoxy and, and Russian Orthodox religion, and I decided, I was like, I, I want to talk to a Russian Orthodox priest in person, hear it directly from them. So I uh, went to a, a 
Russian Orthodox Church and found the priest there and he uh, graciously agreed to uh, sit down and talk. We talked for about two hours. In the conversation, several things were clear. Number one, he had never even read the entire New Testament even though he had gone to seminary. I said, well, what did they teach you in, in seminary? He said, well, primarily we were memorizing rituals, right? Old Slavonic words and all the actions, how to move the incense and how to light the candles and all of that. That's what they learned. It's how to do the rituals. He at times would try to quote scripture and he'd said, well, for example, as, as, as Peter said, and he would quote Paul, and, or as Paul says, and he'd quote John, he just clearly didn't know the scriptures and um, it was very open about that. He says, he, he says, that's not really necessary for what we do. But then I talked to him just on a personal level and I asked him if he knew he was going to heaven. And he said, I don't know and I can't know. So what I said to him next, you know, we had established a little bit of personal rapport and um, so I tried as gently as I could but need, felt I needed to say something direct. I said, I said um, you know, Jesus said if a blind man leads a blind man, they both fall into a pit. And I said, if you don't know, you're telling me you don't know whether you are on a path to heaven or whether you're gonna wind up in hell. He said, that's right. I hope I'm going to go to heaven. I, you know, I, he starts listing off the things he's doing. I said, but, it, but you don't know whether you personally will wind up in eternity in heaven or hell. And he says, I, I don't know and I can't know. I said, then why are you letting people follow you? Why are you encouraging people to follow you? You are leading people and you don't know where you're going. How could you? How could you? If your path winds up in hell and they follow you, what's going to happen to them? He looked me in the eye and said, I have never thought about that. I was stunned by that. But you're, you're leading people and you don't know where you're going and you've never thought about where you're leading them? It was very sad. In contrast to the uncertain hope that comes from trusting in your own works to merit salvation, the Christian, the born-again believer, has a certain hope, and it is a certain hope because it is based 100% on the finished work of Jesus Christ, that he did all that was necessary for our salvation, that his perfect righteousness is the basis upon which we stand before God. That his atonement for sin was sufficient to pay the full price. All that needs to be done for our salvation has already been done by Christ. When he cried out, it is finished, he didn't say, as long as you do the rest. Jesus didn't say when he was dying, I've done my part, now you do yours. He said, it is finished. And it is on the basis of the finished work of Christ that our hope is not a wish, it is a reality because our hope is founded on something that has already been accomplished. It's a fact. It's a reality. Our hope is not pie in the sky. We have placed our faith in a real event the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that has a real effect that God says graciously is given to all who believe. 
Hendrickson writes, quote, Christian hope is not mere wishing. It is a fervent yearning, a confident expectation, and patiently waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises, a full Christ-centered assurance that these promises will indeed be realized. And we see the strength of this assurance here in Colossians because he says that we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love which you have for the saints. He says, because of the hope, and then he says, which is laid up for you in heaven. This hope is not something like it's in you, right? Like you have some hope. Like I, I hope I'm going to make it. Hope things will turn out okay. Hope I'll, hope I'll get to heaven. You know, hope I've done enough. No, no. That's hope which is in you. He says your hope is not even located in you. It's laid up in heaven. Why is it laid up in heaven? Because the New Testament says that Christ is our hope and he is alive. He's a living hope. And so our hope is in heaven. Paul is going to say in chapter 3, if you want to flip over there, he says, verse 3, you have died, chapter 3, verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We have a certain hope. Here's how certain this hope is. This word, when he says, this hope is laid up for you in heaven. The exact same word is used in Hebrews 9.27 when it says that it is appointed for men to die once and after that to face judgment. In other words, for the Christian, your salvation is as certain as the reality of death. How many people die? Well, we've been studying this for a very long time and have discovered that everybody dies. It is appointed, it says, for men to die once and after this comes the judgment. The same word used when it says it's appointed for men to die, this is the same word used here in Colossians chapter 1 to say it is appointed for you to have hope in heaven. It's laid up for you there. It's appointed for you there. It's reserved for you there in heaven. Your salvation the fact of your salvation is as certain as the fact that someday you're going to die. In fact, Paul will say elsewhere that this hope is stronger than death itself. Death is swallowed up in the victory of this hope. It's an awesome thought. Our hope is certain. Verse 12 talks about the fact that the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It's a certain hope for all who believe. Peter talked about this as, as well in First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Notice we don't cause ourselves to be born again. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is what is this inheritance? It is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so in this you greatly rejoice. Well, do you have this hope? This kind of hope. A hope which rests on the finished work of Christ. A hope which is certain and secure. Do you have assurance of salvation? Does your life reflect the joyful tranquility that comes from having this certain hope? 
And do you live in awe and worship of the one who reserved this inheritance for you in heaven, who laid up this treasure in heaven for you, who has promised it and sealed it with his own blood? A healthy church has a certain hope and therefore a certain future. Well, maybe someone is saying, I I don't have that hope. At least I don't, I'm not sure I have it. I'm maybe a lot more like that Russian priest than what Paul is saying about the Colossians. Well, what, what do I do? What, what, what do you do if you don't have that certain hope? I want to direct your attention again to verse 5. He says, you have this hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth the gospel those who have this hope have it because they previously heard the word of truth which is the gospel of Jesus Christ so if you don't have the hope it's because you haven't really listened to the gospel and you haven't responded to it what is the gospel of Jesus Christ it's quite simple Paul says Christ was crucified for our sins. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that you are a sinner, but Christ died for you. And then he rose from the dead and by his resurrection he broke the power that sin and death holds over you. And he extends now to all an invitation saying repent and believe the good news the good news of the gospel so if you don't have the certain hope you need to hear the word of truth the gospel and then you need to respond with with repentant faith once you have responded you are born again by the grace of God and then once you are saved and you have this certain hope there are steps you're, you need to take you need to be baptized according to the words of Jesus Christ in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a public testimony of your faith. You need to be then united with the church body so that you too can have faith in the Lord Jesus and love for all the saints. Love for all the saints is a manifestation of your faith. So you need to be baptized. You need to become part of a local church. You need to begin to serve, showing love for the Lord and for others. If you don't have the confidence that hope is laid up for you in heaven I pray that you will having heard now the word of truth the gospel that you will respond in faith Lord for any soul that doesn't have this hope because they have never responded to the good news of the gospel by turning from sin and placing their faith in you Responding to your call to follow me. I pray, Lord, they would turn from the path of destruction to the path of following you. Lord, you have said that salvation is by grace through faith. And all of that is not something which comes from ourselves. It is a gift that you give. It's not by our works so that no one can boast. So, Lord, I pray if anyone doesn't believe they recognize that they are lost, that they will do what you beckon sinners to do, which is to ask, 
to cry out and ask you to save them, to grant them the gift of faith, to grant them eternal life by grace based upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. May that be the response of each lost heart in this room and may those who have already been saved by grace worship knowing that they have a hope laid up for them in heaven and we give you praise for that in Jesus name amen in a minute